The scripture reading this morning is from the first chapter of Hebrews, I mean, first book of Hebrews, chapters 3 through 4, found in your pew Bibles on page 1001. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Word of God for the people of God. I've had a few reprimands this morning when I've made prayer request for Alabama's quarterback before next week, and I think that says more about you people than it does <laughs> me. So, well, we're, we're looking at um, Hebrews laying out for us Christ as being superior to anything that would tempt us to to go to it rather than him, to return to something else or to um, add something to him. Uh, so we, we have this portion here describing a bit about who Jesus is and a bit about what he has done. Um, it, it is in a, a, um, a chain of um, arguments of Jesus being better than the prophets, Jesus being superior to the angels, Jesus being superior to the uh, the um, Moses, and all of this um, is showing us that he is the one where we should focus our hopes and our faith in. And, and this is part of, um, this morning is part of talking about Jesus' superiority to the angels, which is going to lead us into several um, quotes from the Old Testament to make this argument about who Jesus is. And I want us to look um, at, at this these two phrases of Jesus being um, the radiance of the glory of God and, and then the exact imprint of his nature. We're going to look at those first. Um, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of the Lord, the glory of God. And we, we hear this, and if you think of radiance as like light that comes from the sun, uh, they're, they're, they're we kind of distinguish, but they're together. They're not something separate. They don't, um, they don't go there. I mean, they're, they're not there without the other. And so you have this sense of the, the glory is seen in the radiance. Um, and this is echoing back to passages from the Old Testament that talked about the glory of God uh, when Israel was in the wilderness. So in Exodus 24, verse 16, we read, uh, this is as... God is meeting the people on Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the cloud of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The glory is manifest in this cloud. This cloud is like a, 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 a fire, a devouring fire. And so it's it's this radiant light and this cloud, something visible and manifest. Later, as they build the tabernacle, which housed the ark, which showed the very presence of God and where sacrifices were to be made and where people would go and offer their prayers, the, the radiant 
glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It, it dwelt there. And so this same sense of glory that's on Sinai is then shown to be in the tabernacle, showing God's glory, being present with his people in a radiant, manifest form. Later, as the temple is built, the same glory descends there and shows the radiance of the glory. And, and later, rabbinic thinkers, rabbis, reflected on this, and they um, came up with a word that talked about settling or dwelling. They talked about the Shekinah. It was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God distinct from the glory seen in all of creation or distinct in the glory other ways we think of it, but this manifest glory of God that was seen in the temple. And that is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to, that Christ is this radiant glory, the radiance of his glory, the very presence of God dwelling with us. You might pick up that same theme from the book of John when John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. He's picking up the, the word for tabernacle. He tabernacled with us, and his glory was seen like this. This is what Hebrews is saying. He is the very radiance of the glory. But more than that, the exact imprint of his nature. So when we, um, when we talk about what makes something what it is, we often use the term character or characteristics, you know, the, the characteristics of um, someone, the characteristics of a, um, um, a guitar, you know, is, it has strings, it's made of wood, that sort of thing. We talk about the characteristics of people. Maybe you just kind of talk about somebody being who they are, and that's kind of characteristic of them. It's, it's what they are like. It what, it's what makes them who they are. Um, that word character is actually a Greek word that originally talked about etching or imprinting in something, uh, marking something with etching. And it was what was used when coins were made, right? So a coin has um, a picture of the, the king or whatever, and so you have the, the, that, that image, and that image is imprinted. It's, it's put onto something, so the exact image is done, is made there, it's etched there. And that is the word that is for the exact nature, character. The very character of God is seen in Jesus because he is God himself. It is the, the very character, exact imprint of his nature, it's not reflecting something. It is exactly who he is. The nature of who he is is the, the, the essence of the, the person, the essence of who God is. And so what we see in Jesus is the radiance of his glory, but also God himself, the exact imprint of his nature. And so occasionally we use the Nicene Creed in worship. And you might pick up words that are reflecting this language from Hebrews. Light of light, very God of very God. That is who the Son is. He, he's not something other than God himself. He's, he's not secondary. He's not uh, a person who was elevated because he was such a good person. He got promoted. He was not a super angel like, you know, the greatest angel ever um, or any other, like, cosmic being that was created and somehow 
greater than anybody else in creation, but still not God. He himself is superior to the angelic beings because he himself is God, the very imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. And so this is the argument that he's making is that Jesus isn't an angel. He's superior to the angels. He is not a created being, for he is one through whom all things were created. And if all things were created through him, therefore he couldn't be something that was created. And so the uncreated being is the one through whom all things were created and therefore superior to the angels. And there, there's one other thing. I, I, I've heard on occasion kind of some new agey thought of Jesus has kind of figured out the divine within himself and we all find the divine in ourselves, and as we find the divine in ourselves, we become like Jesus because we touch that. No, this isn't what this is saying. He's saying Jesus is absolutely unique. He's something different than all the angels. He's something not finding God within yourself. He is God in an absolutely unique way. We might miss it, but it was actually in verse 2 when it said, He is appointed heir of all things. What does that mean? Well, usually heir, if you're inheriting, that's divided among all those who have a right to inherit it. All the children have a share in the inheritance, right? I mean, that's the, the story we tell of the, the um, um, prodigal son is he wanted his share of the inheritance. Even though he was you know, a lousy son, he gets a share, and the, the other brother gets a share. There's no one to divide this inheritance with. He doesn't get a portion of the inheritance. He inherits all things. He is uniquely the son of God. There is no one to share that status. He is, as other writers in the New Testament say, the only begotten. He is superior to the angels. He is superior to us. He is superior for he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So... That means for us, it is absolutely appropriate that we pray to him and that we worship him and that we hold him in the highest glory. For Jesus is no mere teacher. Jesus is not even some wonderful part of creation. He's not some great angel. He's not just one among many. He is absolutely unique, and he is worthy of our worship and our praise. So have you ever considered as we sing our praises of worshiping Jesus, as we gather on Wednesday nights and say, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, that if Jesus was anything less than God, that would be blasphemy. For us to worship him and sing of his praises as our God if he was not God and to give him any worship that would be due to God only if he is not who we say he is would be blasphemy. He is uniquely God. So what has he done? Well, he is the one who upholds all things by the words of his power in verse 3. Now, it is appropriate that he is the one who upholds all things because in verse 2, we just looked at is he is the one who created all things. The God who created all things is the one who sustains all things. We don't separate this idea that somehow we're just trying to be really spiritual people. 
God made stuff. God made flesh. God made our bodies. God made who we are. And so we, we don't kind of say, oh, this is bad, and that's really good, and we just want to be really spiritual. Uh, we, we don't have this idea that we just want to get rid of the body and, and enjoy the spirit. He has made all things, and so we don't have separation. And we don't have this idea that this earth is bad, and we want to escape it, and God's going to take us out of it because God made it, and he blessed it and called it good. And we, as you ride around this morning, see that goodness. But also it means that it's, it's the God who created all things upholds all things. We, we tend to think of a God who just kind of made the world, set up some rules, like, okay, we're going to go with gravity. Gravity's a good rule. Here's the way orbits are going to work. Here's the way uh, biology is going to work. And he stamps the blueprint and then backs off and watches everything like he's wound up a watch and let it go, right? That is not the God of the Bible. What does he do? He upholds all things by the word of his power. So he absolutely has rules that he works by. He absolutely, we see the mind of God as we discover science. But every breath you take, is a breath given by the one who holds up all things by the word of his power. His will is at work as you watch the seasons change, as you um, see the things growing and producing fruit, as you uh, see the incredible scenes from the, the, how was the, new, the web satellite. Is that the new one that comes through? As you see all these, all of that is at place because his word upholds all these things, more than, more than just creation, but as he's working all of history, using those things, rising up leaders, collapsing empires, he's doing all that for your good and for his glory. And so that is a wonderful comfort to think of him upholding us, that we pray. We're not just asking him to intervene on occasion as things get out of whack, but we're asking the one who carries us through each day, and what good news, because we know what he's like. Think about this. We watch the news, and I'm scared to death of seeing what Putin is doing and other world leaders, and they seem to be just trying to drive us to war, and we're a little anxious about that. I don't know, scared to death, anxious, somewhere in between there. And you get nervous. And, I mean, we, we, we went through the anxiety with the pandemic and, and economic. I, I, I don't even uh, know what's going on with, you know, economy. But we do know that it's all upheld by one who showed us how much he cares for us and loves us, who, who had compassion on those who were hungry, who welcomed sinners to his table, who said, let the little children come to me, who gathered with his disciples and showed his heart of gentleness and low meekness to people. That is the one who is behind all things, upholding it. And so as we see the news and we, we, we want to be smart in all things, but we trust that he is the one upholding this and carrying the story along for our salvation, working all things for our good. But more than that, it's, it's the anxiety about the chores for this upcoming week, maybe a difficult conversation, maybe you know, something you're, you're anxious about. The God who knows the very numbers of 
hair on your head and who loves you and has shown his care for you is working out all of those things, upholding them by the word of his power. He directs the motions of galaxies as well as your next Thursday afternoon. And more than that, the one who created all things and upholds things is the one who is redeeming us. After making, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification for sins. He goes to the cross. He sheds his blood to redeem us, to cover our sins, to wash us and to purify us and to make us holy, to pay the cost for those sins, therefore that we can be declared clean. But I want us to see is that just as last week we talked about he revealed himself in the past, being past tense, that he spoke, and we don't listen for new voices to be added to that word that was spoken. The same way he purified, it's past tense. We don't add more work to that. We don't look for something additional to take away sin. The work is completed. It's, it's final. It's done. He has purified us, and having done so, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In part, that's showing his elevated status. He is fully the radiance of the glory, the right hand of the majesty. But in addition, he sits down. He's not taking a break because he's got more work to do because you keep sinning. He sits down because it's done. He's finished. It's completed. Your sins are gone. You have been made pure in him. Your guilt is removed. You do nothing more to help get rid of that stain. He's done it. And helpful for us. One of the first questions that is asked of a new believer is, oh, pastor, I, I messed up. I sinned. I, I trusted in Jesus, and I, I you know, believed in him, and I repented of all my sins, and here I go. Two weeks later, I commit a sin. What happens to that sin? What, what about now? And... Maybe you've wrestled with that, and I think most of us do. And and here's the thing is, well, we confess it, but your confessing isn't what cleanses that sin. Your confessing isn't what gets rid of that sin. Your confession isn't that work. You confess it because you're working towards holiness and you're restoring your relationship with the Christ. But there are so many sins that you're not even thinking of that you're not confessing. All of those sins in the future, they're not cleansed by your confessing them. They're not cleansed by anything you add to. They're cleansed by his finished work of purifying you on the cross. And all of our sins are on this side of the cross. It's done. You don't help Jesus out by doing something extra. And maybe some of you are thinking, um, you know, yeah, I know that. I trust in Jesus. I believe in him. But I really messed up this week. I better be in church. I'm trusting in Jesus. I, I did really good, but... I'm going to put a little extra in the offering plate. Now, now, we will accept it joyfully, no questions asked. I said really bad, maybe I need to go to the, the soup kitchen. Maybe I need to do a little extra nice because I was really bad. Do you think you're going to help Jesus out? It's done. He's sitting down because he's finished the work. You're not helping. I mean, you need to do good things. 
you know, come to church, give us some money, get, go help out your neighbor. But you're not earning any cleansing. You're, you're not wiping away sin with that. You're not getting extra brownie points with Jesus. You're, you're growing closer in, in holiness, but his purifying you has done. It's finished. It's complete. That's why he's sitting down. You, you, you come in and you think, I'm not sure I'm really a Christian. I keep sinning. I come and we say the prayer of confession. I'm confessing the same sin week after week after week. Brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't sitting there on the edge of his seat thinking, oh, they messed up again. I got to get back up and go do more work. He's sitting down finished because he's completely taken your sin. You are purified in him. You are forgiven. Your guilt has been removed. There's nothing you can add to that. There's nothing anyone can add to that to take away more sin. The work is finished. He is sitting down, job well done. It's complete. He's resting because his work is finished. And so, brothers and sisters, rest in him. Rest in the one who has Resting because the work is finished. The rest has been earned, and there's nothing you can ever add to the work he has done to forgive your sins. Confession is not. Additional works, more prayers, good things to do, but they're not adding to the work that is completely and totally finished on the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you please stand and let us state what we believe through the words of the Apostles' Creed.